Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Over the last three months, Idle No More has transformed from the title of a Facebook page by activists opposing Canada's Bill C-45 in Saskatchewan to an Indigenous resurgence on a global scale. Deploying a range of tactics from Twitter hashtags to flash mobs, hunger strikes to mass rallies, this First Nations movement calls for decolonization, for a holistic and treaty-based sovereignty, and for environmental justice in the face of Canada's rapacious energy extraction. For many non-natives in Canada and elsewhere, all of this comes as something of a surprise. Media reports often describe the movement as spontaneous, unplanned, and largely unconnected to history. The truth, of course, is something far more interesting, complicated, and inspiring. I'm joined today by Frederick E. Hoxie, professor of history at the University of Illinois and author of several influential books in the field of Native history. Today we'll be talking about his most recent, This Indian Country, American Indian Activists and the Place They Made, released in 2012 by Penguin. In eight moving chapters stretching from the years of the American Revolution to red power in the 1970s, Hoxie introduces us to courageous men and women who struggled to carve out a place for native nationhood in an expanding settler state often hell-bent on their erasure. You won't find the familiar names in here, Tecumseh, Crazy Horse Geronimo, but rather a cast of lesser-known characters, James MacDonald, Sarah Winnemucca, Robert Yellowtail, who fought not with rifle or bow, but speeches, letters, lawsuits, and books. While not a backstory to the Idle No More movement, Hoxie's activists show that from the very onset of the colonial state, Native people responded in a multitude of innovative and flexible ways. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Frederick Hoxie, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm so happy you could be here tonight. Thank you for having me. Sure. So today we'll be discussing your new book, This Indian Country, American Indian Activists and the Place They Made, published in 2012 by the Penguin Press. I want to just say from the outset, uh, from the outset how important uh, your older work, A Final Promise, was in framing and shaping my master's thesis. I'm very grateful to have read it you know, before I went into the archives. So I'm, I've been a longtime admirer of your work uh, but I'm also, I'm also quite grateful for this wonderful new work that you've published, uh, and I, I look forward to discussing its rich and fascinating material. But I'm hoping you can just start uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with you, but uh, why you came to write this book now? Well, a part of it is a product of, of teaching. Um, about a decade ago, I left uh, a world of uh, academic administration. I was at the Newberry Library in Chicago, where I had been for many years, and returned to teaching uh, and came to the University of Illinois, a big university with a wonderful history department, but with no courses in American Indian history. And I began teaching uh, a two-semester sequence, a survey course in Native American history and upper-level, more specialized courses and so on. And right at the same time, I also um, was working with uh, Neil Salisbury and uh, uh, David Edmonds uh, to produce a, a textbook. And so I was in the kind of comprehensive mode of thinking about uh, Native history as a, as a field, as a field that uh, 
you know, is offered now at the University of Illinois alongside Russian history and Japanese history and women's history and all the other uh, slices of history. Um, and was really thinking about how to, how to frame that topic. Um, the uh, textbook was a more or less a kind of a preset exercise in the, in the sense that there are things that need to be covered and we tried to cover them and so on. But in the aftermath of that, um, I got to thinking about what really sets Native history apart and what, how, would, how would someone frame it to, to a general audience. And right about that same time, I was contacted by Penguin uh, about its new History of American Life series. And uh, the, the two uh, kind of objectives uh, seem to coincide. Penguin's objective of wanting to produce important, they think anyway, serious books about American history, but for a general audience, and my desire to publish a comprehensive work about American history, not a textbook, not a comprehensive history, but a, a, a big book, a book that covered a long period of time. Um, so when I thought about those things, um, I was also taken back to uh, my experiences with students over the years um, and what, they, what the expectations that they come to uh, when they come to a, a topic such as Native American history or people in the general public. And my view is that what people um, know about American Indians is really produced by our popular culture and by our national culture, really. Uh, and that, that view, which isn't really generated by Indian people, it's generated by the non-Indian world, is that Indians are uh, people who opposed American expansion, uh, people whose most prominent leaders were warriors, uh, and who were people of the past. Uh, people who were noble, perhaps, and brave, and uh, uh, admirable in many ways, but people who were really uh, figments of the past. Um, and, you know, there are grains of truth in, in many of those statements. Indians, of course, did oppose American expansion, and many great Indian leaders were warriors and so on. But what really makes American Indian history significant, that is the history of Native people inside the United States and over the course of the history of the United States, is the remarkable, I think, um, uh, success, uh, despite the many tragedies and dispossessions, the success of Native people in surviving, in finding a place within the United States, uh, a place where Indian communities can survive, can can live, can even thrive, uh, and we can and 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 could exist into the modern uh, period where Native people are part of the American landscape. Native communities uh, exist and and uh, uh, prosper in many places. Uh, where native rights are defended in the courts and so on. I wasn't trying to, and I don't intend to, uh, paint a kind of sunny picture that everything is great in Indian country. Uh, but I do think that the story of how native people came to survive in the United States has a great deal to do with the story of people I call activists, that is, native leaders who sought to use the institutions, the language, the values that had been imposed upon them by the United States uh, to protect their communities and to actually build a structure for Native survival and uh, 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 continuation and persistence uh, into the modern period. And of course, all of that shows uh, Native people as active agents of history, as people who are thoroughly engaged in the modern world, and people who are, uh, as I say in the book, fellow travelers in the American journey, not exotic artifacts of the past. Yeah, I'm glad you raised how this book, I got the distinct sense in reading this book that it is shaped as much as your role, by your role as an educator as it is as a scholar. Uh, you actually start the book with this introduction about an exercise you do with your students on the first day of class. And I guess your intro to Native American history course, you, you ask them to write down the name of three American Indians, which is quite challenging for a lot of students, right? I mean, what kind of responses yeah. does that generate? Yeah, well, it, it, uh, I should say that this introduction follows uh, the original introduction of the book, which was about 40 pages long and filled with references to other authors. And the people at Penguin took one look at it and said, try again. <laughs> yeah. uh, so to your point, though, of, of really trying to get at what, at, at what the book's ambition is, mm -hmm. is that when I ask that question, uh, really in, intending to just sort of inventory what people have in their heads, uh, the answer is always the usual suspects. Uh, Crazy Horse, Geronimo, and Sitting Bull uh, with Pocahontas uh, usually taking a, nipping into third place every now and then. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, people of the past, people whose fame, if you want to call it that, came from their engagement with or opposition to American expansion, and people who who uh, reflect a kind of a general understanding that Native history was short and sad and is over. Um, and so the, the book's ambition is to try to paint a different kind of picture uh, uh, that um, contrasts with that of people who had long commitments, uh, people who are deeply engaged in the modern project and in the American national uh, project um, and who uh, existed and, and surfaced over many parts of the country. I have to say this. I was a bit surprised to read the epigraph of this book, this quote by Adam Smith, who actually makes it a pretty incredibly trenchant criticism of, of European colonialism. Maybe it's a, a bit of a tangent, but I was why, why open with Adam Smith, this kind of amazing and surprising quote? Well, amazing and surprising is kind of what I was hoping for, so I appreciate <laughs> that, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, I think you're the first person who's mentioned that to me. Uh, I came across this. I can't remember what I was doing reading Adam Smith, but uh, I just thought, wow, this is, you know, Adam Smith is one of those characters that we, we kind of uh, caricature. Sure. But, you know, we don't really think of him. At least people who aren't in the field of, of uh, economic theory and so on don't take him very seriously. I think as a three-dimensional person, I thought, what a what a really insightful uh, statement. Um, and it really, and I, I guess the other reason. So I, it, it's surprising. Uh, it also shows that um, you know this is not a story whose uh, ending is has yet been written, and not a story that certainly Adam Smith thought was over. Uh, the history of Native people was not—it was not finished as far as Adam Smith was concerned. This was part of a, a long process of uh, European expansion, colonialism, dispossession, and resistance to, to dispossession. And uh, I thought the open-endedness of that quotation was really striking, um, and it, it evoked a lot of the ideas that I hoped to uh, uh, stimulate in the book. And one of them was just surprise. Uh, and I think I think all of the the characters in my book are are surprising in the sense that they're people in a sense who who weren't supposed to be there, uh, people who were um, unexpected and uh, remarkably original and inventive in their time. So maybe you could talk a bit about uh, the process you went through in, in selecting whose stories you would highlight here. I mean, you you mentioned a little bit how you you weren't necessarily looking for people who physically resisted American empire, but you make the distinction that even if people didn't physically resist U.S. expansion, they never necessarily surrendered to it. Right. Um, what is that distinction, and, and how did you come to these characters that you highlighted? I um, uh, spent uh, a long time, uh, um, I couldn't tell you, but, uh, it was uh, this book gestated for a long time before I actually started writing it, and, and uh, uh, I sort of began composing a kind of all-star team of political activists. I thought, well, you know, who's who's really who, who's really a remarkable political activist? I one of the figures is Sarah Winnemucca, who I I have taught uh, many times in my in various uh, courses. Uh, her autobiography, Life Among the Pious, is just one of the great books in American literature. Um, and uh, so there were people who kind of jumped out at me. And, but then as I began to sort of think about them, um, I, I wanted to begin, again, because the book, one of the initial ideas behind the book was to reach a general audience. I thought the best way to do that was not a narrative of policy questions or a narrative of land issues or uh, built around an abstract question, but really a narrative that was built around individual lives, about people um, who were... Um, uh, human that, that had that that uh, had doubts that uh, had ambitions that weren't realized that failed, uh, but they also had friends and networks and families and influences beyond their own time and so on, and um, and so I, I kind of uh, arranged them uh, chronologically, uh, and over time the the figures began to sort of fall into place. So I begin with James McDonald, the first Indian lawyer. Uh, as far as I know, the first Native American to be trained as a lawyer in the 1820s in, uh, well, he was trained in Ohio, but he practiced in, in Mississippi, he worked, really essentially worked as a, for a brief time as a tribal uh, attorney. Um, and I ended with Vine Deloria, who I think is a remarkable character, who died just as I was beginning to write this book and, and uh, 
was a good friend and someone who I thought embodied a lot of the ideas that I wanted to get to. I had Sarah Winnemucca. Thomas Sloan has always fascinated me, a lawyer who practiced in Washington in the early 20th century. Uh, and so they, I kind of pieced them together. Um, and we can talk more about this perhaps down the line. But one of the things that really I found amazing as I began to not just assemble a list of names, but began to actually work on them and write, uh, was the many connections I found uh, among them. So they're really, they're meant to be real people and they're real actors. And I've tried to show them in three dimensions. Um, but they're also quite representative of particular moments um, in this uh, uh, progression of activism and the emergence of, of political activism. So while these characters don't necessarily emerge from the tradition of, of martial resistance, they also don't fit into familiar narratives of civil rights, per se. Um, you write that this is not a simple story of linear progression and a triumph and a climatic court decision or, or legislative victory. How do you think these stories you tell here buck the, the common understandings of that we have might have of, for instance, the advancement of political rights for African-Americans uh, in that divide between sort of militancy and civil rights advancement? that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's, um, many years ago, I, I was an admirer of Richard Kluger's book, Simple Justice. Um, and, uh, it was a story of Brown. It's a, it's a long, uh, dramatic narrative of the Brown case and, and how it came to be and so on. And for a long time, I, I thought, gee, it'd be nice to, <laughs> nice if there were a Native American Brown. And then of course you ask the question, why isn't there a Native American Brown? Well, because we're talking about a much more complex situation. We're talking about people resisting colonialism, about group rights, about treaty rights, about cultural rights, about people from a different cultural tradition than the American mainstream. Uh, and so it, 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 while there's overlap, there's um, uh, a lot of, of difference and divergence. It's one of the reasons why I, frankly, why I, I saw Vine Deloria as my anchor um, uh, in the modern period, because of course, one of the things that Deloria was most outspoken about early in his career was that dur during the 1960s with the height of the civil rights movement, where he said native American rights are not the same as African American rights and native people have a different agenda than African Americans and, and uh, Latinos and other, other uh, minority groups. It's not, it's not just a civil rights uh, movement. Uh, and so I, I also was very, clear in my mind, as I, as, at least as I tried to write this, I'm not sure if it works everywhere, but um, that the agenda was always more than just uh, a change in the law or a change in some particular, um, in some sh short term uh, of victory. And I think that's, a, that's really an important thing to always keep in mind in, in Native history is that we're talking ultimately about an about a incongruous relationship, about what is essentially a colonial relationship between the United States and American Indian people who were not uh, present at the creation, who did not consent to the U.S. Constitution, and who were dispossessed by the creation of the United States, and yet who live and and prosper and and have allegiance to the United States. It's a it's a it's a, um, a paradox, uh, but it's a it's a fundamental fact of Native American uh, existence. I also wanted to ask, as, as sort of a broader framing question. There seems to be a, a concern, obviously, in the book with place. I mean, the title is This Indian Country, American Indian Activists and the Place They Made. Uh, and then, of course, your first uh, chapter is titled Erased from the Map. Maybe talk a bit about the, the title, why you went with the place they made and, and what do you, what are the sort of spatial or, or sort of place elements of this of this work? Uh, that, that's also a really good question, and I'm not, I'm not sure how well I can answer it, except to say that um, chapter one, Erased from the Map, really began as a short introduction and evolved into a much bigger story because the United States was founded on the assumption that Native people did not exist. Uh, and I wanted to make that clear, uh, that people, literally societies were erased from the map. So I, the, the first chapter is about the aftermath of the American Revolution, and this absolutely outrageous American ambition to have the western boundary of a new country at the Mississippi River. The Spanish were horrified at this idea. The French were kind of perplexed and the Americans insisted on it and because of the 
convolutions of diplomatic life in Paris in 1782 and 3, uh, they were able to win the, the agreement of the British to this western boundary. But the effect of it was, was to assert American sovereignty and control over an area, you know, 80% of which or more was Indian country. Um, and so, how, and so the, this is the predicament Indian people find themselves in in the early 19th century. This country has been created and there is no place for them in it. They are living in it, but there is no legal, conceptual place for them in it. Mm. And the victory of these people is that they create that place. They create a legal place. They create a conceptual place. Mm. They create a, a, a way of living uh, in, a, in a country that was founded on their dispossession. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a, that's a segue of sorts into, into this first chapter. Um, we won't have time to discuss all of the characters yeah. here, but, uh, which is all the better because I, I do hope people go out and pick up a copy of, of this fine book and, and get to all the other characters. But um, I just want to spend a moment with, with Joseph Brandt and Alexander McGivilray. Uh, yeah. I guess uh, more broadly, I mean, is there any uh, a very effective chapter in a lot of ways? And I'm just wondering if there's any other way to read the American Revolution from a native perspective other than as a tragedy of sorts, which is sort of my, I guess, my bigger question. But more particularly, why did you pick Brandt and McGivilray to, to get at this crisis in the American Revolution period for Indian people? Well, the part of the story, too, is that the founding of the United States marks a dramatic shift in the political, not so much the day-to-day reality, because, uh, you know, sovereignty, where I'm sitting now in central Illinois, the shift of sovereignty to the United States didn't mean a whole lot in 1783 or 4 or 5. But uh, conceptually and politically and and, um, uh, legally, uh, it was a dramatic, um, I think um, uh, many authors have written about this. Uh, uh, Dan Richter does very well in his the ending sections of his Facing East book and certainly Colin Calloway's book on the revolution, that an older style of imperial diplomacy and imperial politics in which Indians played uh, important military and diplomatic roles um, was 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 ended and a new national regime was created. And both McGillivray and Brandt were um, products of that older style, that older era. They both served in the British Army. They were both officers. They were both respected allies of the British. They fought alongside British soldiers. They expected, uh, they had the, and this was the tricky part, they had the tacit a recognition of the British as independent sovereigns, as independent uh, leaders. Uh, when Joseph Brandt heard the terms of the um, Paris Peace Treaty when he was at Fort Niagara uh, in the spring of 1783, he was he, he couldn't believe it. And he went straight to Quebec to talk to the British commander. He said, what, what's going on here? And the British commander had no, no answer for him. Uh, so I wanted to, I used them in that chapter uh, to show how their world was literally being swept away. Uh, by this shift in political reality. Hmm. Now, I'm unfamiliar, I was familiar before this book, rather, I should say, with, with Brandt and McGillivray, uh, but I was actually completely unaware of James MacDonald. You mentioned him a little bit earlier in the interview. Uh, a Choctaw who, who is, for all intents and purposes, the first uh, Indian lawyer. Uh, MacDonald comes to the fore uh, in the removal crisis that faced not only the Choctaws, but every uh, Native nation in the Southeast you write that the, the Choctaws realized what they needed uh, in this particular moment, in this particular conflict uh, with the United States, was not necessarily a charismatic chief, but a lawyer. Uh, how did that come to be? And, and you know, what, what's going on in that moment uh, for the Choctaws that a character like James MacDonald um, becomes uh, so important? Well, in some ways, MacDonald's uh, experience recapitulates, and the Choctaws' experience recapitulates what I just said about uh, McGillivray and Brandt, in that they, the, the Choctaws, uh, having been uh, comrades in arms with Andrew Jackson during the Battle of New Orleans, uh, having been uh, signatories to treaties with the United States in the aftermath of the American Revolution, uh, thought, thought of themselves as permanent residents of the Southeast, sovereign neighbors to um, the white settler communities and so on. 
Um, they had a prosperous uh, cattle industry and a whole range of things going on. Suddenly, suddenly, um, in 1819, uh, the uh, president's representative, Andrew Jackson, this politician from Tennessee, comes to a treaty council and begins to insist that they that their time in the southeast is over and that they must move west. Um, the uh, people he was negotiating with, many of them were people who had actually fought with Jackson, uh, who wore American military uniforms, um, and he would hear none of it. He, he was essentially saying to them that that alliance, which was a kind of a holdover from the pre-revolutionary days, that alliance is over. Uh, we are making the laws now, and there's no place here. Again, place. There's no place here for you. And in their struggle to kind of come to terms with this, they turn to this young man who has just returned from the East, who has been trained as a lawyer, and they take him with them uh, to Washington, D.C., where he serves, as, as many young men did both then and later, uh, as a kind of interpreter and clerk to the, to the elders, the chiefs who, who um, uh, were there. But what was really remarkable about James McDonald is that he went to Washington with these uh, elders, Pushmataha, the famous Choctaw uh, leader who was the leader of the delegation. And, uh, you know, I said they needed a lawyer. I didn't say they hired a lawyer because I'm not sure exactly what was in their minds, but they saw him as a valuable asset. And they they began using him as a, he recorded uh, the, tr- the negotiations he wrote proposals to the Secretary of War. He he critiqued the proposals that came back. In other words, this was really being, and I, I again, I think pretty much for the first time, this was being conducted as a as a literate negotiation. This was not ceremonial. This was not people sitting across a treaty fire. This were people in different offices writing out proposals and passing them back and forth. Um, and so this really remarks this this really marks a, a dramatic shift in the way treaties were negotiated. But then uh, the other thing about uh, McDonald, which I think is really quite remarkable, is that many people know the story that Pushmataha dies uh, in the middle of these negotiations. He, he gets a, this he gets an infectious disease in in the winter, and uh, McDonald is a, in effect the leader of the delegation after this. It's a number of lesser chiefs and young men and so on. And they negotiate the treaty. But then the other thing that happens that's really quite remarkable is that uh, McDonald writes a memorial to Congress uh, as they're leaving Washington uh, uh, in early 1825. And in this memorial to Congress, which is very brief, uh, I really sort of argue this is the kind of the, 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 the foundation stone of federal Indian law. Because what they say in this memorial is, you are a nation of laws. And because you are a nation of laws, you will protect our rights. Mm. They're really saying, you have, we have treaties with you, and because you're committed to legal relationships, you are the one who are going to guarantee our rights. That we actually have a bond here that ensures us certain protections. And it's a remarkable kind of lawyerly judo move, in a <laughs> sense, uh, that makes the United States suddenly the guarantor, at least rhetorically, of Indian rights. And this is what treaty rights are all about. Now, treaty rights are something that we, it's a, it's a concept that we're very comfortable with in the 21st century. It, this was not something that had been envisioned by the founding fathers. And it's really um, MacDonald who I think begins the process of articulating what that means. So it's, you know, again, it's, I, I don't want to make too much of him. He was a very small character at a, at a, tiny moment, but it's very, very early. It's before the Cherokee crisis really hits. And it's one that, that really um, uh, shows the, the inventiveness and the agency and the creativity uh, of an Indian activist and literally making a place uh, for his people in that way. You know, it's easy to look back uh, at the, at the removal crisis uh, as, as and Indian removal more broadly as something that was uh, inevitable uh, that, you know, it was just this long march of the U.S. West. Uh, I mean, do, do you think that there was a possibility to, to fundamentally change? I mean, were, was the U.S. negotiating in good faith in these moments, I guess is my question, in the sense well, that, you know, could could have negotiations more broadly uh, change the dynamic? And I guess they, they did to a large degree, uh, but I guess... Yeah, just, well, I mean, it, I always say to students that if, if things are inevitable, we're all out of work. So, you know, the historians are out of business. Right, so, right. uh, I, 
I, I reject the inevitability uh, of all of this um, just as a just broadly. But um, what I think what 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 someone like McDonald demonstrates is um, both the the uh, is is how um, the rules of the game were being changed. Uh, this wasn't happening automatically. It wasn't just a matter of brute strength. In the, in the end, of course, it was brute numbers and strength that that, that made the day. But um, the process by which it occurred uh, created a kind of political consciousness among Choctaw leaders. You might say just among elites, but I think uh, I think you could say beyond beyond just a few people, uh, a kind of political consciousness of of the Choctaws and of other groups as political actors with certain claims on the United States. Um, and also they give the, the lie to Jackson's fundamental point, which is that uh, American Indians are backward people mm-hmm. uh, and cannot live in a modern world. This was, they, were, they, were, they were completely uh, at home uh, in this uh, um, relationship and in this negotiation. They were perfectly prepared to negotiate some kind of uh, you know, way of living uh, with the uh, with the American nation state, and and you know, yes, they fail. McDonald dies. The Choctaws are removed, uh, and yet, and I want to just repeat chapter after chapter here. But 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 the, I think the removal, um, as tragic as it was, uh, really starts a process of legal um, reflection on the part of Native leaders, and so. In the middle of the 19th century, when I, I, my next chapter is William Potter Ross and, and the Cherokee leaders of the, of the second half of the 19th century, who really articulate a kind of full-blown idea of American, of, of, excuse me, of Native American nationalism and of nationalism coexisting with American nationalism, uh, it's really a very much a continuous process or a continuous thread uh, from MacDonald into those leaders of the, of the late 19th century. And that's an example of what I was saying earlier about sort of picking these people and thinking about these as different moments. And yet, as I got into them, seeing the, the connections really between them. Hmm. So jumping ahead a bit, another character I have to admit I hadn't, I hadn't heard of before was Sarah uh, Winnemucca. I hope I'm pronouncing that in, in the ballpark. I think so, yes. Yeah, with yeah. Sarah Winnemucca, uh, who, you know, who, as you mentioned earlier, it published a very important book, the first Native woman, I mean, Native American woman to have a book published in the United States. Just... I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, Sarah Winnemucca and, and introduce her uh, uh, to, to the audience. Uh, Sarah Winnemucca um, grew up, uh, was born literally in the middle of what's now I-80 running into California. Uh, it was the California Trail. It was the trail that the gold prospectors followed. And living on the border, the California-Nevada border with her Paiute uh, family and, and so on, uh, she witnessed firsthand um, the American the 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 onslaught of American settlement in uh, in California. Um, and what was remarkable about her is that she uh, learned English very early. Her father and grandfather were were leaders of the of the Paiute bands that were on the eastern slope of the Sierras there. And she was around white people. Her her father and grandfather were kind of. Uh, tribal leaders who, who uh, attempted to sort of negotiate agreements with the Americans and so on. And she saw things fall apart. Um, and she became an interpreter. Uh, and, but, but it's, and so she, so she gained increasing uh, fluency and command of English. And in the course of this, she witnessed the daily um, kind of violation of treaty rules, violation of reservation boundaries, uh, she violence against Indian people in general, against Indian women in particular, um, and she um, uh, goes on the on the lecture circuit uh, in the 1870s and begins uh, speaking out against American expansion. This is, of course, at the time of the beginning of the uh, Indian rights uh, movement and the humanitarian reformers of the late 19th century, and so on. So she begins kind of in that vein, but but. She really has. She has a remarkable voice, uh, and um, people use the phrase "speak truth to power" today all the time. Now, she's really an example of someone who did that. And so, in her autobiography, which I should just step back and say that she was on the lecture circuit, and then she made 
contact with uh, white women reformers, uh, people who are involved in the Indian rights movement, but other, other women's rights movements and so on. And two of them, uh, two of these people in Boston sort of took her in and encouraged her to, to take her lectures, basically, and turn them into an autobiography. So Life Among the Paiutes is an autobiography of her career, but it's written in this dramatic, um, uh, very modern voice, where, and, and, it's, and it's a kind of a tes- testimony uh, to the costs of American expansion. So at a time when Americans are celebrating the, the westward movement and the conquest of the West, and they're painting those wall-sized paintings of the Sierra Mountains and Sierra Nevada Mountains and all of that, Sarah Winnemucca writes, the Americans came into my country like a lion. So she has this image of the American expansion, not as noble settlers, Daniel Boone type characters, but as a lion, you know, that is roaring lion, she says. Uh, and so she talks about the, the, the dark side of American expansion and the, the, um, the immorality uh, of it and so on. And it's just, just a, a remarkable um, voice. And, and I, I, I thought I wanted to, to write about her because she's, she isn't, I think, well understood. Um, <clears throat> she's been mischaracterized, I think, by a lot of people. Um, but also because she makes the point that the, the, the activist, uh, one element of the activist critique of the United States wasn't just kind of legal and political, but it was also sort of moral and rhetorical. Uh, sort of challenging the idea of America uh, as a um, uh, representative of, of, of democracy and of expansion and of, and, of course, of 19th century progress, you know, the great value of the 19th century. She's, she's saying this is not progress. Uh, and the, the, the book is, is really written in this kind of ironic note about the, about the civilization of the Paiutes and really about the savagery of, of the Americans. Hmm. Thomas Sloan is another character that that is it's a little bit of a later period, but I was very interested in, in the context of Thomas Sloan. I mean, in, in the one sense, he's calling for citizenship, but it's not exactly the kind that uh, the assimilationists that you write about in A Final Promise. I mean, the, the white assimilationists, the people who are uh, launching right. this campaign, uh, which is supposed to culminate in, in citizenship of a type. You know, by the time you end A Final Promise in the 1920s, there is the Indian Citizenship Act. But Thomas Sloan had a, had a different vision of sorts for where citizenship would take Indian people. Is that fair to say, you think? Yeah, it is. And, I, and it's, uh, I'm glad you asked it that way, because I, to go back to something you asked earlier, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book about individual people and about their view of the world and trying to link their views of the world across time is that people take, for example, Sarah Winnemucca, one of her one of her. Um, uh, goals was to create protected areas for Paiute people. And she didn't care if they were small homesteads or they were large reservations, but there should be some kind of a homeland for Paiute people. Well, people have looked at her and said, well, Sarah Winnemucca believed in a lot. Well, actually, that's she might have signed on to some allotment laws, but she wasn't. This is not Henry Doss. This is not this is not someone with that agenda. So so it's really important to understand not just the perspective of these people, but the context in which they were functioning. So, so Thomas Sloan, uh, the chapter is called the good citizenship gun. Uh, Thomas Sloan really adheres to the idea that, that citizenship can be a weapon. It can be a tool used by Indians to protect their rights. Hmm. Uh, he grew up at a time when the, when the arbitrary power of the Indian office was absolute. When, um, in fact, he himself was sent to Hampton Institute as punishment for exposing corruption on the reservation. Before he knew it, he was on a train to Hampton Institute in Virginia. Uh, so uh, from his point of view, citizenship was going into court and defending the, the rights of Indian people to do things that the government didn't want them to do was a way of supporting uh, treaty rights or tribal rights or group rights uh, or cultural rights. Um, and when he sets up his law office in Washington around the time of World War I, he really uh, he begins to he becomes a kind of full time lobbyist and lawyer for Indian groups that have come to Washington either with authorization or without it uh, to make their case before uh, federal committees and so on. Um, and he's he's accused by by uh, authors of being uh, kind of an ambulance chaser and maybe kind of corrupt and so on. And I 
I didn't find it. I, I, none of these people, I think, are perfect paragons of virtue. But uh, he, again, his perspective was that he was using the law and using citizenship to defend the freedom of Indian people to engage in their lives the way they wanted to, uh, to do it. So uh, I want to jump ahead now a few decades and, and just bring out the last character that we'll spend some time with or figure, uh, and that's Vine Deloria Jr., someone whose uh, intellectual work I think uh, many of our listeners are quite aware of. But uh, you've chosen to include Deloria in a book about activism. It's not premised around intellectuals. I mean, you obviously highlight his intellectual contributions as well. But I think that not many people know of uh, Deloria's role, for instance, uh, in the National Congress of American Indians. So mm-hmm. hoping you could just talk about Vine Deloria Jr., the activist. Okay. Well, uh, one of the things that was remarkable to me is I, I, I had heard a little bit about this because I, I, I mean, I, I knew some of this, but uh, that Vine Deloria was, became the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians in 1964. Uh, he was 31 years old. Uh, he had almost no experience in government or in activism. Uh, but he was an ambitious, well-educated, articulate guy uh, who had a very who came from a very important family. His, his father and grandfather were religious leaders in the Dakotas and uh, uh, famous bilingual Episcopal priests. And, and uh, at any rate, Deloria was well-connected but, but not well-experienced. He arrives in Washington, D.C. just as... Uh, Lyndon Johnson is elected to his full term as president in the same month that are the same fall season as uh, Martin Luther King is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, this kind of uh, high, high watermark of sort of liberal progressive reform and so on in, in the 20th century America. And he seizes on this uh, moment uh, by uh, becoming a, a very strong advocate and an architect. Uh, of the idea of what's now called the war on poverty or the, and the, these war on poverty programs, which are, which are now largely forgotten. But what people don't realize and what Gloria saw so clearly was that what the war on poverty promised was that community action groups, that community organizations in originally the conception was in, in cities, in poor areas uh, or in rural areas, uh, could organize themselves and could uh, petition the government for money to support, whether it's a local housing project or an economic development project or an industrial park or something. And Deloria saw that this was, and others, but Deloria was, was quite out front in this, uh, saw that this was a way for Native American communities to organize and to become financially supported without having to go through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, to have, to have literally self-determination on a very small local scale. And so he uh, becomes really a kind of facilitator uh, through the National Congress of American Indians uh, in, a, in a, an array of programs where uh, tribes organize housing authorities, they organize schools, they organize hospitals, they organize uh, educational programs of various kinds, and they use the funding of the, of the Office of Economic Opportunity, but other federal agencies as well to create uh, an actual tribal infrastructure in Native communities that can become a vehicle, a place uh, where native political leaders can have a voice and can have real clout, can have real power. Uh, and it's really at this point that the, that, the, that the power of the Bureau of Indian Affairs really, it's kind of a tipping point um, where um, uh, uh, native tribal uh, leaders begin to sort of have the upper hand. I remember visiting an Indian reservation in the 1970s and there was the Indian agent at one end of the building and there was the tribal council at the other end of the building. And the superintendent had, I don't know, three quarters of the space in the building and the tribal council had one quarter. It was sort of like the, the, like the student council for the reservation. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a generation later, it was exactly the reverse or more so, uh, where the tribal council was running the schools, it was running the hospital, it was running the housing authority and all the rest of it. And it really grows. It's, it's more than just the Office of, Office of Economic Opportunity, but it really is that exploitation of these new kinds of resources that were, of course, made available because of the civil rights movement and a bunch of other things uh, that Deloria uh, takes advantage of. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, just to say very quickly about Deloria, is even as he's engaged in all of this, um, and he was an intellectual, he's constantly kind of crit- critiquing it at the same time, wondering, you know, are we just kind of becoming bureaucrats? Are we just mm-hmm. becoming administrators? 
Um, one of the things he warned against in his writings is we don't want to become we want self-determination, not self-administration. We don't want to just administer programs that are just set up by somebody else. We want to actually. And he was constantly, um, and it's why he was a he, he was often a controversial character in Indian country because he, while on the one hand he was a leader that people respected and so on, he also was a, especially when he when he returned and, and came to the university and became a kind of outsider to the world of activism. He loved to poke fun at Indian leaders and to to uh, point out there where they were um, getting a little too comfortable with the government and its programs and so on. What's his relationship to the American Indian movement when it, when it really comes on the scene a few years after his uh, NCAI uh, involvement? So that's really an interesting part of the story. Uh, and I would say it's a complex relationship. On the one hand, uh, I mean, he said at one point that he thought, uh, you know, that Russell Means was one of the great uh, native leaders. Uh, uh, that he admired their um, uh, adherence to the uh, wisdom of the elders in these communities, standing up for tribal culture, defying uh, the bureaucracy and all the rest of it. But he was terribly frustrated by the fact that uh, their um, uh, uh, rhetorical and theatrical resistance uh, didn't have a st strategy behind it. Uh, his idea was that they, you should be doing both things at once. You should be challenging. You should be um, uh, enacting the most kind of dramatic change you can, uh, but you should also be prepared to negotiate some kind of a solution. So Alcatraz, Wounded Knee 2, uh, some of these other events, he, on the one hand, was supportive of them, but he also was critical that they didn't produce any concrete uh, uh, results. I'm not sure if they could have, but that was that was his his view. And he was also frustrated by the fact that um, the uh, the dramatic uh, pose, you know, the warrior pose at, at Wounded Knee and so on, uh, attracted all the media attention and the serious people uh, who were the elected tribal leaders and others were were often ignored by the mainstream media. It's interesting you raise that. One of the the things I wanted to mention at some point in the interview is. It, you know, it's interesting. I've spent a lot of time in activist circles, mostly white activist circles, um, on, on various sort of po of various political stripes, and there is a, there is some canonization or, or even iconography of of people like Geronimo, uh, all the way up through Russell Means. But you don't see that with the characters that you raise in this book. And you know, I mean, the, those aren't the the people that have been sort of canonized by uh, by non natives who who look for political inspiration. For various, you know, whether it's right. environmental movements or whether it's, you know, any other kind of movement who look and, and borrow and even appropriate sometimes, uh, you don't see. You one of my one of my hazy memories of the 1960s being an undergraduate was I had a poster of Geronimo on the wall of my dormitory room. I have absolutely no idea why I put it up. I knew nothing about Native history, but I really liked that guy holding a carbine. I thought that was great, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's, right, exactly. It's, yeah. It's a symbolism, is, but it's not real. It's not, you know, it, was, sure. it wasn't even an inch deep. Yeah. You know, it, and it's one of the reasons I also wanted to have you on now is, is there some of these debates are, are coming uh, to, to a head uh, with this Idle No More movement. Absolutely. Uh, which is going on uh, mostly among Canadian First Nations. But the other thing that, that connects it in some ways to this book is this unbelievable range of tactics everything from this incredible you know internet messaging of the idle no more movement it's all over social media to uh, hunger strikes to policy discussions to direct action and civil disobedience it seems like there are a whole range of tactics being drawn upon in much the same way that many of the characters in your book are drawing upon a range of tactics right and i think that the, again i don't i don't mean to conflate everything together or to summarize or to be sure. too simplistic about it. But I do think that it goes back to the fact that this relationship is ultimately a colonial relationship. And so the resistance or the, the effort to find a way of living in the United States um, is never going to be simple and will always be subject to people who will, who will challenge and who will disrupt uh, what looks like a sort of a, a good solution at a particular time. Uh, I love the moment uh, at the opening of the National Museum of the American Indian, which is a wonderful moment for me to be present when the doors were opened. But as they were being opened, uh, when what, that was eight years ago when the museum opened, there were young native guys uh, passing back and forth, handing out uh, leaflets saying, condemning the museum for not 
focusing on genocide as a central uh, fact of Native American mm-hmm. life. Uh, that 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 instability that that even in this kind of you know august formal uh, institutional setting of the opening of the museum, there were critics who would be I think very comfortable with the idol no more and the and uh, other tactics today. Interesting. So uh, before I let you go, um, I, I sort of just wanted to ask you one broad question. I mean, about the new Indian historiography or the historiography generally of the kind of studies that you've done, because you have played a large role. Uh, in shaping this field over the past decades, and I, I just kind of wanted to ask you broadly if you're uh, optimistic about the field. Where do you where do you think it's going, or where where do you think it should go, or you know, just some thoughts along those lines? Well, I feel like I'm a follower rather than a leader at this point. I think I think it's going in a number of really exciting directions. I think the uh, uh, existence and the growth of the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association, uh, which is now holding annual, very large and successful annual meetings, uh, bringing together Native and non-Native scholars from all over the continent and now uh, internationally, uh, is is reflective of, of that. Uh, I'm privileged to work with uh, graduate students who are exploring uh, topics of transnational Indigenous history of um, uh, indigenous experiences in many time places and, and so on. So I, I see this as a, as a, as a field that is uh, growing, that's vibrant. Uh, and it, and I think probably that what I would say about the, where it is now is uh, connecting increasingly with other kinds of histories, with imperial histories globally, um, with uh, histories of women, histories of regions, histories of cities, um, uh, that native history is not just uh, um, this little um, garden that is being cultivated and grown, but is actually turning into a forest that's growing and and combining with other with other scholarly endeavors. And I think I think it's uh, I think it has its own identity. It's not disappearing in the process, but it's certainly uh, uh, flourishing. I think uh, at this point. So I've been speaking with Frederick Hoxies, the author of the new book, This Indian Country, American Indian Activists and the Place They Made. It's out now from the Penguin Press. Uh, Dr. Hoxie is a way of uh, ending. Uh, you've written on Federal Assimilation Program, Lewis and Clark, The Crow Nation, Indians in the Progressive Period, now this wonderful book on Indian activists. Uh, what's next? Well, I'm very interested in this idea of Indian activism, of indigenous activism, and I'm and I'm curious to uh, explore it uh, beyond uh, the boundaries of the United States at the turn of the 20th century. I think that that there is an indigenous story to American empire and American imperial expansion, particularly in the Pacific, uh, that I'm interested in in the, trying to um, uh, trying to explore and, and find a way to to write about. I think there were I think there were other people like these uh, in other parts of the world, and I wonder how much they knew about each other, how much their ideas ran parallel to one another. Uh, and so I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm in some ways I feel like I'm being led by my students, but uh, I, I like where they're going, and I want to try to follow along. Well, Dr. Hoxie, thanks so much for joining me today. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a discussion with Frederick E. Hoxie about his new book. This Indian Country, American Indian Activists, and the Place They Made, from Penguin Press in 2012. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can download and subscribe to the podcast. We're also on Facebook, where you can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening, and support the Idle No More movement.